Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell, and today we are pulling back Hollywood's crypt to review Terry Gilliam's The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Oh boy. <laughs> this has to be said on the top. This has to be getting out of the way because it's going to be the focus point of the entire discussion. This movie is fundamentally broken. It's not good. It's not good. And there are things that I want to say are good about it, and there are positive points. But, like, normally it would be like, here's not a good movie, but here's reasons to show it kindness. No, like, the flaws of this movie are so great that it truly outweighs the good. And I'm going to ask you, I'm going to compare this later with our, our worst of the worst, and we'll figure out where it fits. But, like, this one is worse and offensive in an entirely different way, where it's like, Terry Gilliam, you made this wrong. Yeah. I mean, there's, there is like racist things, there's sexist things, but there's also just like, this is just bad. It's badly written. It's badly made. It's badly bad. Yeah. (sighs) So do we want to compare it up front just to give our listeners kind of like a, here's how bad it is if you listen to all of our episodes? You know what? Sure, sure. Let's let's go ahead and do the listeners the kindness. Okay. I'm just going to say straight up, I would rather watch Blood for Dracula again before watching this. Oh, okay. Like, I was going to... Oh, wow. <laughs> I know. You were going to go down the whole line and be like, is it worse than this? Is it worse than this? And I'm just going to be the human I am and not waste time because I'm a straight shooting kind of gal. Um, this was just bad. And I would rather watch blood for Dracula than watch this again. Okay. Would you rather watch plan nine? Is this at least better than the worst movie we've ever seen? Yes, but only because of Eric Idle, like by the skin of its teeth. That's fair. I'll take it. Cause like, I I mean, same, but like, so myself personally, I really have to think on if I would rather watch blood for Dracula again. I mean, th- you, you told me when you watched it, this is get up and make a sandwich bad. And that's the only movie I've ever gotten up and making a sandwich halfway through. And I know, I see what you mean, but yeah. no, no, Andrew, I, no. I, I, I'm truly like I'm teetering on the fence. I think here's the thing. Okay, here's the thing. Okay, Stephanie. Okay, Stephanie. Okay. Okay. Blood for Dracula was a random low budget art house. Oh, we finished our movie a month early. You want to make another movie? Okay. This uh-huh. wasn't. This was a endeavor. This had. Monty Python money. So for this to be just as bad does make it worse. So I will go ahead and agree with you. This is the second worst movie we've ever seen. And, and, and so 
that just brings up an interesting point. Like both these movies, Band Munchausen and Plan Nine, are fundamentally, like at a structural level, bad. Which is fitting, I guess. It's just one of those things that I mean, ten minutes in, I always like uh I can't make sense of this. Oh. I can't I don't I don't enjoy this. I know I'm not going to like this. And it wasn't helped by the fact that the subtitles, I don't know what it was about Voodoo, but the subtitles were off. So I couldn't even read along and make sense of it correctly. Oh, fascinating. Okay. I watched it on Amazon um, and, and didn't have the same problem. Yeah. So in case you skipped this movie that we've spent five minutes saying how trash it is. Yeah. If you listen to these episodes before you watch the movie, this one is not worth your time. Yes. Please, please, please don't watch this movie. It's a trip and a half. It's one of ours that like I straightforward suggest that our listeners skip. But for like a picture of it, take Labyrinth and made it with Man of La Mancha and then have Terry Gillum direct it, and then have a loosely followable plot about a guy who has over-the-top adventures that may or may not be true, and then connecting it to somehow a political revolution. But putting any more of a plot synopsis on it is an extreme challenge. Yes. And, like, this is a movie where things just happen... And there's very few, like, once you see a character that isn't one of the main characters, it's a coin flip if you ever see them again. And, and I understand, like, like you could say the same thing for Mirror Mask. You could say the same thing for Labyrinth. Sure. But there's something so... That, that is not a... That is a risky formula. And it takes the charm and, like, it takes quality to make that work. And I wasn't seeing it here. <laughs> Um, well, the thing about Mirror Mask and Labyrinth is that they're actually well written. Right, exactly. So, you know, that helps. Yeah. And and just a little bit of extra context for people, because neither of us even knew this until I kind of on a whim found it, stumbled across it this morning. Baron Munchausen is, well, first of all, he was a real person. He was an actual German baron who was like famous for uh, fighting in a a war in Russia and then like telling super exaggerated tall tales about his adventures during the war. And then somebody else, a guy named Rudolf Rasp, took all of these stories that this dude would be telling in bars and stuff and made a book about it in the 1700s. So Baron Munchausen is like a Davy Crockett folklore character to uh, those parts of Eastern Europe. This wasn't a random, insane fall out of my head idea from Terry Gilliam. This was the man going, I'm going to honor this, this story. (laughs) And I wouldn't use the word honor. Yeah. That almost makes it worse because I, I love folklore. I love the idea of it. I love, how stories follow down generations. And that makes me want, wish I had read the book or the collection of stories before I'd had to deal with 
whatever the fuck this was. Sure. Absolutely. This, <sighs> this film. So, so, so returning to cult fiction, Terry Gilliam, you know, director of Brazil, director of the alien scene in Monty Python's life, Brian, Terry Gilliam, um, who created this film as the third part of a, like a thematic trilogy. The first movie is Time Bandits, which we haven't seen, but it's on the list. And I remember really not liking. The second movie is Brazil, which we picked apart and you very much didn't love. Correct. And then the third is This Garbage Fire. This Garbage Fire. And the whole thing is it's supposed to be like the imagination trilogy it's supposed to look at how like a kid's imagination works versus how a man's imagination works versus how an old man's imagination works and i just don't interesting i i don't i don't even get that because this movie this movie breaks that own conceit because it's about a guy who lies his way through things only they're not really lies only it turns out the whole movie was a lie only this only it is so hard to like look at anything at this movie from a thematic point of view when spoilers it turns out like the middle hour and a half of this two hour movie is just this guy telling a tall tale to a theater full of people and all of the characters you, you grow to enjoy if you grow to enjoy them at all. And all the stakes and all the, everything is completely wiped away. Yeah. I had a moment where I was like, Oh, I don't think I like Terry Gillum because the, he was my least part of Monty Python and life of Brian I didn't like Brazil. I didn't love this. But then I looked it up and Andy, he also co-directed The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. Yeah. He wrote and directed, well, he didn't write Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, but he wrote the script for Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which is one of my favorite movies. The The man can do good work, but then... If you leave him to his own devices, if you leave him to his own devices on his own, like, you you get this. You get this. Whatever the hell this is. Ah, ah. I tell you that and all you can say is, ah, what are you, blind? I'm not even sure how this was made other than he had $46 million in Monty Python money and convinced Eric Idle and John Cleese and all the rest of them that this was going to be Princess Bride level good. And they believed him. And then it was a complete train wreck. I want to read the book about the making of this movie. There was so much like shit that went wrong behind the scenes. And if I were a Python, I would, I would have kicked him out. Okay. Well, so first thing is this movie um, was mostly filmed in Rome and it was filmed in Rome, but all of the costumes and and a lot of the sets were built in Spain. And so 
crossing the border from Spain into Italy, they ran into all sorts of customs problems. People like held the costumes and the sets a week over time. It took another two weeks then anticipated to even finish building the theater set. Um, and when they actually started filming the high wind velocity in Rome made it so impossible to do anything because sets were falling down and costumes were getting blown away. By the end of the first day, he had 17 seconds of footage. By the end of the first week, the project was already a week over like schedule. So Mm. it, it, it would have been as if they just sat there and didn't do anything for a week. Oh, that's not a good look. He absolutely um, put children in danger because this has Sarah Polly as a, a as a child actress. He absolutely endangered children. He absolutely like I don't even want to see if any animals were hurt during the making of this because I feel pretty sure that the answer had to have been yes. This movie was just a nightmare to the point where, like, after two weeks, the people at Columbia were like, "Do we fire him?" Do we fire him and try to save this? <laughs> Interesting. So in another world, we could have had a different Baron von Mauch- Ma- Manchowson. <laughs> yes. Or as uh, as Jonathan Price says it in the German, Munchausen. Um, yeah, there we go. There, there are at least three different alternate worlds because at the same time, Columbia Pictures was going through an entire like executive changeover and the uh, president and the primary producer who had worked with Gilliam on Brazil was fired. A new person came in and and Gilliam says that this movie was a flop because it was totally political and Columbia with the new management didn't do like, didn't want to market it at all. Didn't want to do anything that would make the old people in charge look good and almost like, so so almost never made this. So we've got the alternate reality in which Columbia doesn't have a changeover and this movie gets made with theoretically a larger advertising budget. We have the alternate reality where Columbia fires Terry Gilliam and gets like, I don't know, Steven Spielberg to direct this film. And then we have the darkest timeline where neither of those things happened and, and we got what we got. Oh, we live in the darkest timeline. I like to imagine that in a different timeline where Steven Spielberg came in, coronavirus didn't happen and Bernie is president. I mean, if we're if we're being wishful thinkers here. Yeah, if if, if, if <laughs> it's out there somewhere in the multiverse, we just have to get to it. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, so like I, I mentioned, this is a, a Gilliam joint. And with that, that comes, uh, a lot of actors who we've seen before returning to cult fiction, Eric Idle, John Neville, Jonathan Price, Jack Purvis, Dennis Winston, and in her first film role, Uma Thurman. <laughs> baby, baby, Uma Thurman, who is made to kiss a very old man. Yes. So let's, let's talk about that because that was... I think the thing you and I talked maybe the most about besides um, just how bad the movie was in general. So Uma Thurman's 18, right? She's 17 during shooting. Right. And that is an important enough distinction that I want to make it clear. I missed that. Otherwise I would absolutely have mentioned that. 
She's 17 during the making yeah. of this movie and plays a couple different parts, but one of them is the goddess Venus. Which fair. She's young. She's beautiful. She has a certain physique. She's fair. Yeah. Like, I get why they cast her as that completely. And she does a great, like, job. Like, apparently she nailed this oh, on yeah. the first audition, and it, you sit here and go, yeah, it's Uma Thurman, duh. She is 17 years old. She is cast as Venus, and she is cast opposite famed British actor and drunken, lecherous bastard Oliver Reed. Who is how many years her senior? Oliver Reed is 32 years older than Uma Thurman. Uh... And reportedly spent the entire time in real life trying to seduce her and making advances on a woman who is younger than his daughters. Not even a woman. She's not even legal. She's a girl. She's a child. Fair. Very, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> She's a youth. It is technically very, very not good. And yeah, like, I really enjoy the acting of Oliver Reed. I think I think yeah. he's great in the movie. Vulcan is really fun and enjoyable. And the fun thing about Oliver Reed is his vo- his voice, his eyes, and the rest of his face can be conveying three different emotions at the same time. But I offer no defense for the man. He was he was a bad oh, man. <laughs> Um, so I don't know what I disagree with. I mean, obviously in real life, I disagree with his actions on set, but I don't know what I agree with more in the casting is like, hey, either you're married to a man who's 32 years your senior, or you are made to kiss a man who's like 50 years your senior. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, because... So yeah, she's married to Vulcan and she kisses Baron Munchausen, who is played by John Neville, who was even older. He was, let's see here, he was five years older than Oliver Reed. So he's 37 years older than Uma Thurman. And it's not an either or, it's a both. You do, you will do both of these or you will not be in my movie, actress who nobody knows yet. Which, let's bring back... We don't, I don't, I don't think Terry Gillum likes, likes women. Terry Gillum a hundred percent does not like women. And this like seals it. Yeah. Like, yeah. Cause he was awful to Kim Greist. Time Bandits. Mm-hmm. I don't even think has any women in it. Um, oh no. <laughs> and I mean, certainly I can't think of any good female representation in any of the Monty Python films. So... <laughs> Yeah, I think Terry Gillum's a misogynist. I, I think I think this is the official take. <laughs> no one's surprised. No one's surprised. And so, yeah, let's add to his sins. Um, not only is a misogynist, but he is, like, dangerous for children to be around. Well, because poor Sarah, like, has been quoted as saying, like, yeah, no, it was terrible, and I have PTSD about working on this movie. Yeah, Sarah Polly is like straight up like, yes, this was a deeply traumatic experience. I was a kid on set, and shit was blowing up around me constantly, and I was left to stand in like freezing cold water for hours on end. She she has a career. 
I, I've never really seen anything else she's done, but like she, she's had a, a long career and I'm shocked that she didn't just run screaming after this project. Yep. Deeply bad. You know, your old friends. So it would seem. Let's, let's go ahead and, and get this out of the way too. The other thing, just for the trifecta of this, uh, this, this retroactive social justice segment, this movie, <laughs> this movie is racist towards Turkish people. Uh-huh. This movie is racist towards Turkish people because they are presented as a cartoonishly foreign, evil, invading army. And my feelings towards the Ottoman Empire and a lot of uh, po- po- political aspects of Turkey are very complicated. Uh, if you want to know why and, and are unfamiliar, look up the Armenian Genocide. But that doesn't excuse the racism, really. So it's complicated. <laughs> Yes, most issues on race relation are complicated. <laughs> Fair. It's the biggest understatement of the year. <laughs> yes. But there's so much in this movie that doesn't age well, but you have to like kind of examine it under the lens of like, oh, that's just Monty Python humor. Like there's this whole bit in the first, I want to say first 20 minutes, where they have... um this thing called the torturer's apprentice where it's on the back half in Oregon and on the front half, a torture device, but certain keys hit the tortured people within. So they make a certain sound. Right. And, and the, the uh, Sultan of Turkey is writing an opera, but his musical notes is people screaming, <laughs> which yeah, not great. <laughs> not not great. You kind of say it out loud and you can't help but chuckle at just the concept of it. But then you actually examine it and you go, Ew. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think I, I, I think my deepest issue with this movie is that I see what it could have been. Mm. And kind of what I thought it would have been knowing nothing about the film. You said in the first 10 minutes, you were like, oh, this isn't good. I was actually very much here for the first 10 minutes of the movie. You get these epic sweeping fancy camera shots of a war torn city. You get this theater troupe trying to survive in said war-torn city and like boost morale for the masses. It's very clear that like things aren't going well because all their stagehands died. So it's this plucky underdog theater troupe and it could be an examination on the power of hope and theater. And, and then, then walks in a man claiming to be the character you're presenting on stage and all you need to do to make it really interesting is make that ambiguous. All I wanted uh-huh. was for them to never make it clear if John Neville was really the Baron Munchausen or if he was some old senile dude who thought he was. Give me that and movie. That movie sounds cool. Yeah. yeah. 
Because the aesthetic, I mean, the sets are beautiful. The costumes are actually really cool. Um, the part where they go to the moon later, the the way that they had to do the sets because of aforementioned budget issues and tech issues. Mm-hmm. All very interesting to look at. But the way that the movie is framed and written are the biggest problems about this movie. Yeah. This like I said at the top, this movie was made wrong. This movie very, very clearly has its climactic action in the first five minutes. Yeah. And then we just have an entire movie of downward like action. And there's a reason why that doesn't work. There's a reason why you don't do that. Because you spend the rest of the movie going, uh, uh, okay, where are we going? We've talked before about like author's intent on this podcast, I think. And I think also we've talked about how like as a creator, I deeply feel like you have a morality to guide the audience Mm -hmm. along in a certain way. And this absolutely just takes audiences captive and goes, here you go. You're in a shit show. Have fun. Yeah. Here's all the fun ideas spilling out of my head. Like here are all these amazing sets here. Here are these funny characters now, now go. And that's, it's not enough. The, the author's intent, Gilliam's intent, his self-stated intent was for this to be an examination on the imagination in the context of an elderly man, a man who's lived a full life. And I just, I immediately hear that. And my mind plays with so many possibilities. This could be an examination on nostalgia. This could be an examination on senility and how the two interplay with each other. And like, you can, you can have Munchausen believe these stories without without making them real. Yeah. And and the movie kind of does that. The movie tries to do that, but it's so infuriating for the entire thing in the last 5 minutes to be cut back to Munchausen has been telling this the entire time because like that's Gilliam going like see it is ambiguous. But then it's not because they open the gates to the city and the Turkish army is gone and his horse is there and it, it what is going on? It's lazy storytelling. Like they tell you in script writing class, never do, unless you have some new take on it, never do the thing where your character wakes up and it's like, and it was all a dream. Like, don't do that. That's lazy. That's lazy writing. Right. And yet it forces your audience to fill in the blanks themselves. And I got to tell you, the blank I filled in is dark as hell. Uh, I was so, I was so desperate to like, tie this into a way that at least thematically made sense to me. And the only thing I got is, okay, so the whole movie was Baron Munchausen recounting his tales to the audience and recounting this, this story of how he defeated the Turkish army. And it, it, it can't be presented in past tense because it involves characters he met just now. So it really is just like spur of the moment him telling this this tale but he wins the hearts and minds he wins the hope of the people he leads them to the gate and there's a very 
long pregnant shot where I almost wonder if this was Gilliam's actual intent. There's a very long shot of the people looking outward. And so you only see their faces, but the gates are open and it goes on for too long. And the only thing I've got is that at that moment, Munchausen, like we go into his perspective and the whole bit of the army's gone and he rides off a hero. That is the last shattered fake perception in his own mind. And in reality, they've opened the doors to a full Turkish army and he gets everyone killed. That's the Mm. only way this makes sense. Interesting. You know, okay, so... (sighs) Okay, I know I fought you on this when we talked about it beforehand. (laughs) And I was mad at you because you compared this piece of literal flaming garbage to one of my favorite movies of all time, which is Big Fish. Which is And you were like, oh, it's... Which is a delight. It's so good. And I was like, no, Andrew, don't don't even compare those two things. I shan't have it, you know, being over the top like I am. But the more <laughs> the more that I think about it, I'm so mad at you. <laughs> the more that I think about it, the more you're right. Because it's that it's that scene at the end when um the son is at his father's funeral and there's the Siamese twins and there's all his father's friends from the circus. And there's the woman he fell in love with and there's the giant man. And no, trust me, trust me. I get it. I love big fish. The thing I told you was that the thing I said was this is big fish made wrong. No, I I know. I'm well aware that that's what you said just in the moment. I wasn't I wasn't ready to hear it. <laughs> oh man. It's I, listen, I get it. I I this this thing is uh, near offensive. I remember being angry at this movie. I am overwhelmed. <laughs> but that really is the thing. It's it's backwards. It's backwards in every way. You want to compare it to Real Big Fish? The whole point of Real Big Fish is that it's... No, it, hold on. I, it's not Real Big Fish. It's Big Fish. Thank you. I caught myself and was like, oh, wait, shit. <laughs> yeah, very different things. That's a band. Very different things. <laughs> you want to compare this to Tim Burton's classic Ewan McGregor starring Big Fish? The whole point is Ewan McGregor never believes his dad's stories. And that ambiguity is baked in. And then you're presented with, no, it was real. And there's something beautiful about that. And what Gilliam did is he like, just was just straight up. Like, I'm not interested in ambiguity at all. It's all real. Only then maybe it's not. Ha ha ha. I'm a trickster. So. (laughs) Ha 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 ha. Um, At the beginning of this, before we were recording, I said that I didn't have a reading wreck and you said don't worry this is based on you know a collection of tales which you had already mentioned but also i do have a last minute reading wreck because big fish the movie is based on a novel by daniel wallace but um neither here nor there that's our last minute reading wreck (laughs) fantastic i love it so deserving for this weird bizarre movie 
Well, so deserving in that it's a, okay, no, here's a better version of the story. Like, here's here's a better version of what this story should have been thematically. Here you go. Yeah, and, okay, so I was really surprised to see Robin Williams in this. And then I was more <laughs> surprised. <laughs> uh-huh. I was more surprised that you uh, had opinions about one of your favorite actors and his role in this. I never saw us having this disagreement. You you mentioned in your notes that like Robin Williams as the King of the Moon was one of the absolute highlights for you. You told me it was one of the only good things about the movie. And this has got to yeah. be my least favorite Robin Williams role ever. I hated <laughs> it. Okay, so my thinking was... Okay, okay, I hate this. Okay, I hate this so bad. Oh, Robin Williams is on the screen. Let me stare at his beautiful, familiar face. Okay, he's off screen. I go back to hating this movie now. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I'll, I'll, I'll give you my experience now. Oh, okay. Oh, I'm here for this. Oh, I'm here for the first 10 minutes of this. Oh, oh okay. We're This is a weird flashback. And okay. Okay, he's got a, a merry band of, of superheroes. Um, okay, that was weird, but we're done with that now. Okay, we're, we're back in, in the reality, and, and oh, she saved him from the angel of death. Oh, oh, wow, okay. And, and okay, he's, he's flying on a cannonball, and this is presented as real. I don't like that. That breaks the movie in a way for me, but, but, but okay. Okay, now they're leaving to to save her family so they don't get kicked out. Okay, okay, they're going to the moon. Oh, I heard Robin Williams is the king of the moon, and that's one of the best parts of the movies. I can't wait to get there. Oh, wow, these moon sets sure are pretty. And oh, there's Robin Williams. Uh, oh. Oh, it's it's all of the Robin Williams cocaine, frantic, chaos energy. And none of it's actually funny. Oh, and his character is actually kind of like disgusting in a farcical way. <laughs> you know what? I might have liked the King of the Moon when I was a kid. In that yeah. he's silly and his head flies away and he farts kind of way. I The only thing, truly the only thing I liked is there's a scene where he's tickling his wife's feet and her head is off of her body because that's just a thing the moon people can do. Her head is somewhere else and he doesn't know that and he thinks she's just being quiet and he goes, oh, you're a pillow biter. I was like, <laughs> give me more of that and you didn't, my friend. Like, oh, I heard. Which is a shame. Good, good. Oh, I was going to say, it was a shame because most of his bits were ad-libbed. Right. And, and normally that's a key for comedic gold, but like... I, I I wasn't here for it. I don't know. This this was like that was the moment the movie lost me. And I think part of that is because I I find Robin Williams so dependable. I find Robin Williams so dependably entertaining. And I was like, okay, I can trust this part. And then that was my least favorite part of the movie up until that point. And I was just like, oh nope. Mm-hmm. Gonna go make a sandwich. Yeah. Yeah, this was this was get up and make a sandwich bad. This was pause it and look at how much longer you have left bad. And then like 
they go from that immediately to the stuff about Vulcan and Venus. And that was so much better and so much entertaining. And so the movie had me back for a second, but, but, but that, by that point I was just like, okay, I like Oliver Reed. I already knew I liked Oliver Reed's acting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and then they have like Uma Thurman and Baron Von Poopy Pants do their, like, waterfall dance that gives extreme Casper vibes. hmm And then the movie, it kind of just falls like you've dropped yarn from a high distance and it unravels after that. Yeah. This, I mean, it's indicative of the whole thing, but this movie, Gilliam breaks the rule of three. He breaks the rule of three because there are four sidekicks. And so we find Eric Idle on the moon and we find mm-hmm. Dennis Winston in Vulcan's volcano. Mm-hmm. And, and so you're, you're sitting there going, okay, so we're going to find somebody else. Okay. There's a fish monster. We're going to find somebody else in, in the belly of the beast. And then we're going to find the fourth dude, a complete other part. But then the last two dudes are both in the fish monster so it's Gilliam going, ah, ha, ha, you thought I was going to break the rule of threes. And I'm like, no, you did, because there's four of them. And now you've just made it worse, because you're like, the, the rule of th- threes is a thing. I'm going to stick these two in one spot. The the This movie isn't divisible <laughs> by what it should be. <laughs> you're doing your math wrong, which, you know, same. Then, you know, we get to the part, we, we get to what Gilliam thought would be the climax, was is, is the great, like... Turkish battle scene on the beach and, and everybody's using their superpowers again, but then none of them were real or at least we have no proof that they were real. They were four dudes who Baron Munchausen made up. And the fact that they have superpowers is really fun and cool, but none of them actually existed kind of. It's so frustrating. Yeah. This, uh, It feels like a weird fever dream. The only thing I can think to, like, critically comment on it is because I've seen another Terry Gillum film. um, I'm like, okay, so he has some similar visual themes here. So we have, like, the big fluffy cloud love scenes. Mm -hmm. We have a gilt iron cage that the Baron and his sidekick and Sally are placed in. There is a lot of water imagery as there is all of that in Brazil. But other than me playing English major, let's connect the dots. There's not a whole lot going for this. No, you know, the only other thing, and I didn't realize this until we were talking about it. He kind of does the same ending in Brazil. You know, we talked about the the last quarter of the movie when Jack escapes and, and has this great roaring adventure drives off into the sunset it's the same thing where it was like, here's what could have happened and then cut to what's really going on. Only this time Gilliam didn't have the cojones to present the dark ending because that would have, I mean, which fairly that would have like totally ruined the movie. (laughs) You can't have the movie about a senile man who presents all these amazing adventures and then gets everyone shot or you you can, but you you can't present it the way he presented this movie. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. I'm like, how how much more could we actually ruin this movie? 
I want to fix this movie and I, I don't know how besides like, you know, what I talked about is, is make it about something engaging, make it about nostalgia and like looking back on your life and pride and like do that. And then also re-edit the entire movie so that like the climax actually happens at the end. And then maybe, but I just, uh, I think therefore you is. I don't care about this movie enough to try and fix it. Like I'm not going to think about this again, except for when we bring it up the next time we see a real awful piece of shit and be like, okay, would you rather watch Baron Munchausen? Baron von Puppepants. Apparently, (laughs) apparently um, Terry Gillen was supposed to be having a satirical reference of the JFK assassination when Munchausen is assassinated. Like, like I read, Uh, like he, uh, that was his intention was like, this is me talking about JFK getting assassinated and how a politician did it and got off scot-free. And it's like, okay, why, why are you putting, make that more than just like a post-it note on your script, dude. This part is about this. Cool. How? How? (laughs) The only similarity is somebody that a lot of people like got shot. He didn't even get wait, didn't he? He got shot. He like okay. He he got shot, but that was that was the ending of his story. Like the ending of Munchausen's story is I got shot and everybody loved me and I got a hero's funeral. Because like the one thing this does kind of do is it makes it really clear that like the dude wants to die. He wants to stop but he can't until it's in a heroic manner. So I, I don't, mm. I, I, it's not worth it. Like somebody else can, can no. textually analyze this and then hit me up on Twitter. You know, who's going to do that? Chris. Well, Chris is always welcome. Chris, you are always welcome. Matthew, if you like this movie and want to talk to me about it, you are also always welcome. Anybody is welcome, but I, I hope you don't watch but, this one. Yeah. so okay the whole reason we're here is this movie cult this movie or is it just bad (laughs) right and and like i so desperately want to assign it the second thing but i think this is another toxic avenger where a lot of people love Mm -hmm. this but we are not among them Mm mm-hmm like if you scroll through the IMDb user reviews, it's a lot of people being like, this is a, a phenomenal, fantastic romp of, of imagination and fantasy. And another one's like other people like this. I thought I was the only one. I loved it. I, I said at the top, this movie had $46 million of Monty Python money. Like specifically, I'm, I'm trying to remember cause I don't have it in front of me. This was put to get this was the first movie put together by a um a production company created by the Pythons. Like they were like, okay, let's start making our own production film company. It's called Allied Filmmakers. Allied Filmmakers is like the Monty Python production studio. 46 million dollars of this movie and it made back 8 giant As in bomb. eight dollars well it eight million it's not that bad okay 
I was just picturing Terry Gillum like holding eight dollars in cash money and being like, "Well, it's enough for a cheeseburger." Wait, he's not English. He's not English. I was about to say he's from oh. Minnesota. <laughs> oh well, then I I don't have it. I don't. I don't want to do this. This is, you know what? He's holding $8 and he's like, well, it's enough for a trip to Carl's Jr. There you go. Saved it. Proud of you. Thanks. (laughs) He's holding this $8. He gets a a delicious Carl's Jr. burger and he ruminates on how can I make my actual Don Quixote movie? Because I mean, you can see it in this. The man clearly loves that story. And then it takes him literally 30 years to make that Don Quixote movie. No, I mean, this, this, I, I think this is cult, but I don't want it to be like this, this truly, <laughs> this falls into that thing of a lot of people like it. I'm surely not one of them. And I don't think it's cause I didn't see this as a kid. Cause I, I, I never saw return to Oz as a kid and I loved return to Oz. I just think this is bad, but Arguably cult. But, and we got to give it an Oscar. We do got to give it an Oscar. Uh, because every film, bad or good, is deserving of at least having an Oscar. This movie was nominated for real Oscars. And I say that with like a question mark and, and a shock in my voice. But then when you see what they actually were, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I get it. Because um, it, it was nominated for a bunch of art stuff. Like it was nominated oh, for sure. for best set direction, best costumes, best visual effects, and best makeup, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Because if nothing else, this movie is pretty. Yes, yeah, it, it it is pleasing to look at. Just don't pay any attention. <laughs> but which is why? Which is why? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> which is why my Oscar is. But this is the best movie to get high to. You know, I can see that. <laughs> maybe that's what... It's not going to make sense. Maybe that's what it takes to make sense. <laughs> maybe you get it. Or maybe you just really dig the colors, man. I don't know. Yeah. But I, I think that is a very appropriate... Like, if you're not going to watch an actual stoner comedy then watch something visually distinctive and any other visually distinctive movie you might actually want to pay attention to. I, I will give Baron Munchausen the Oscar for most fundamentally broken script for reasons I have spent the entire episode talking about. <laughs> you made a bad movie. You wrote a bad script. You, this was based off a book. You had source material. And you and this was a bad script. I think it's really interesting it's... to point out Gilliam continues making films like this doesn't stop him for even a second. But all of his films, somebody saw this and was like, you must be reined in. And that is what I'm mm-hmm. going to hire this person to do. And then his movies are a lot easier to follow. Like he, he made the Fisher King, which is like Oscar nominated for lots of different things after this. And he made 12 monkeys and he made fear and loathing and he made brothers Grimm and he made imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus and all movies that are good. 
But God, this one was broken. <laughs> I agree. Did you find anything in the script worth quoting? That's very uh, clever word use. I, I did not find anything in the script worth quoting, but I do have a quote. Okay, hit me with it. So, you know, you mentioned the other part of this movie that you really like is Eric Idle. And Eric Idle's charming. I don't think Eric Idle knows how to not be at least charming. I love him. He is very good. And when asked about the making of the movie, this is what he had to say. Oh, it no. was a truly horrible experience. And even remembering it is a bit of a nightmare. Up until Munchausen, I had always been very smart about Terry Gilliam films. Don't ever be in them. Go to see them by all means, but to be in them is fucking madness. And I don't know if he said it with the venom I just did, but God, does that sound like the truth? Eric Idle says, I don't like you, Terry Gillum. Eric Idle says, I've been friends with you for like 20 years and I will never be in another fucking movie with you, dude. Oh, <laughs> well, the only quote I could pull out was going away. I'm trying to die, which sure. you know what? Same halfway through this movie. Yeah. Rooting for you. <laughs> just give up. Just lie down in the belly of the fish and just close your eyes, dude. It'll be better than what's going to happen. You know what's also better than this movie? Kevin Bacon. Tying it to Kevin Bacon. Absolutely. <laughs> Say, what do you got for me? So Charles McCowan, who mm-hmm. played Rupert and Adolphus, is in Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus with Tom Waits, who we all know uh, was in Queen's Logic with Kevin Bacon. Indeed. And uh, just even thinking about Tom Waits is a, is a bright um, moment of joy <laughs> compared to talking you, about I thought movie. you might get a kick. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I can't wait to get hey, to that maybe, movie. I was going to say, maybe the crypt will give us something really sweet after this and be like, I'm sorry, guys. Here you go. Here's here's hoping. We'll find out. But before we find out, uh, the other way I was able to tie us together. So, so that was two, right? That was two. Okay. I also did it in two. Um, you know, this was the first movie Uma Thurman was ever in. Bright, fresh-faced, 17-year-old <laughs> Uma Thurman. A number of years later, she was in My Super Ex-Girlfriend with Rain Wilson, Dwight from The Office. And Dwight from The <laughs> Office is in another movie that is absolutely on this list, um, which is called Super, which has Kevin Bacon as the villain. So there's my uh, there's my six degrees, also in two. Yay. I'm excited for us to get to a movie that Kevin Bacon is in. I have to figure out what the hell we're going to do there. <laughs> Yeah, like, do we, do we, huh, do we just, calamity. Do we just play the entire song? I, I don't know. I haven't thought about it. <laughs> oh, I like that. Just play the entire song from Footloose. Right. Well, why not? I mean, why not? I, I, I will think on that and, and I think we'll figure out if we want to do that or do something else. And we might have to think very quickly because we uh, pick our movies on cult fiction with a random number generator. And I have no idea if Kevin Bacon is in the next one or not. 
<laughs> Let's find out. Let's find out. So we have the crypt has 297 movies for us. And the next one we are going to be looking at. You, you say good God, but remember it is getting smaller. <laughs> next on cult fiction, we have number 36. And number 36, I I don't know if Kevin Bake is in, is in this or not. Number 36 is the Brad Bird directed 1999 animated film, The Iron Giant. Have you seen The Iron Giant? Kevin. Have, have is I, he the bad guy? Have I? Have I? <laughs> is, is he the FBI I, guy? <laughs> I'm going to have to look this up I right just, now. <laughs> Well, I assume you had, but you gave me such a stunned silence. He, no, Kevin Bacon does not play Kent Mansley, who works for the government, Andrew Richard. <laughs> I've seen this movie once 15 years ago. <laughs> I have seen this movie probably an upwards of 20 times. All right. Coming at it from different points. I like that. <laughs> No, Kent Mansley, who works for the government, is played by... I see now you've written in our, our doc one of my literal favorite movies of all time, so I should have realized. Yeah. Who plays him? Christopher McDonald. Oh, I had to look up Christopher McDonald's face to remember who he is. I was about to say, I, I pride myself on these things and I have no idea who that is. When you look him up, you'll be like, oh, fucking that dude! Do, 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 do. Oh, fucking <laughs> See, <laughs> but also okay. This this cast is fucking lovely. I will agree with that. This like we have. Sorry, go ahead. Well, well, I I know it's Jennifer Aniston, and I don't remember who plays Hobart. But I remember Hobart because I had never heard the name Hobart before that. Um, and, and the biggest thing I do remember is this was one of Vin Diesel's first movies ever because he is the titular Iron Giant. And everybody forgets that and then is surprised when he was Groot. And I'm like, no, he knows his way around a voice acting booth. Yes. And it's Hogarth. Not Hobart. Kind of invalidates my point, but yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's like, there are so many things that you're saying that like people who know Iron Giant are like, Ugh. because there, there is a part where someone misses his name and he's like, it's Hogarth. Oh. I've, I've seen the trailer <laughs> for this movie probably 20 times, but I've only ever seen the movie once. I could probably do an episode on this movie alone without watching it. Bold words. I could. I'm not gonna, because I have to take <laughs> notes and shit, but I could. Well, fair enough. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. Well, <clears throat> that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time when we watch 1999's The Iron Giant and find out whether or not we are Superman. <laughs> <laughs>
cry. That's the one part I like <laughs> deeply remember. <laughs> For Stephanie sure, Johnson, sure. I've been Andy Boel. Hey.